Amen. If you'll turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 8 this morning, as we continue on in the reading as well as the preaching of God's Word from this, the Acts of the Apostles. And we'll begin reading for context in chapter 7 and verse 58. Then they cast him out, that is Stephen, out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to the knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they are all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. Entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip When they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. You may be seated. If you were to travel to modern-day Geneva, Switzerland, there is a downtown park, and In that park is a Reformation memorial to the 16th century Protestant Reformation. On on that memorial is statues of several reformers, all of which had connections to Geneva and with the Reformation. But it's under the statues, under this memorial, I am told, that there is a Latin phrase that says, post tenebras lux. A Latin phrase that is taken from the Latin version of the Old Testament from Job chapter 17 and verse 12, which stands for, after darkness, light. That little Latin phrase was in many ways a a rallying cry for the Reformation, that after times of great spiritual darkness, the light of God, the light of his truth shines forth. And it's a beautiful imagery of the power of light. We take light for granted, don't we? Especially during the day, like now, where there is plenty of light. But when in the dark, light is extremely needful and helpful. And in the deep darkness, even the smallest flame or the smallest spark can shine brightly. If you've ever been with us on our candlelight Christmas Eve service, you know that exactly right. When we turn off the lights, it's almost pitch black, but as soon as those candles are start, to, start to be lit, you see this whole place aglow just from small little candles. So too, that is the calling that we are called to in this life and in this world. There are many that are saying that our world is becoming more dark that we have left our moral and cultural moorings and that we are free-floating. Now, I don't disagree with that assessment. There are indeed trends that are disturbing. But I often think that such thought, such sentiment is usually said to induce fear. 
It is said as kind of a watch out. Things are going to get bad. They are going to get rough. And you better embrace for some turbulence. You better hold on. But culturally speaking, we are not to fear the looming darkness. Because it is in the midst of the darkness that the light shines more brightly. And the Lord calls us to be salt and light in a dying world. And if the world is dark or becomes dark, our light is to shine that much more brightly. This indeed is not the time to to hunker down or to retreat, but rather it's to be dispersed into the world, to be the light that is needed. That is what we see in the passage this morning. That was the response of the early church from the blood of the first martyr of the early church, that of Stephen, and from that increased persecution, we see the early church not stopping, not ceasing, not hiding, but going forth, spreading the good news of Jesus Christ. And that is a wonderful lesson for us to learn. It's a wonderful lesson for us to implement now as we have relative peace, but even more so as persecution would come. So we'll see that in two points this morning, the great persecution, and then second, the gospel response. First, the great persecution. Chapter 8 and verse 1 begins with very ominous words, and Paul approved of his execution. Now to fully understand what that means, you must understand the context. And if you've been with us the last two weeks, you know it fully well that Stephen has preached a very indicting uh, sermon that you do not have faith in God, but rather you have faith in your traditions and faith in what you see, but not in God above. And that just like your fathers, you have always rejected the salvation of God You've rejected his redeemers, those that he sent, ultimately culminating in the betraying and murdering of the righteous one, the Lord Jesus Christ. Such a sermon, as you know, did not go over well. In fact, we saw last week that they that listened to it were enraged. Literally, they were cut to the heart, meaning that their hearts in a sense, was filled with so much rage, it was cut in two. And they ground their teeth, seething and vitriol, and they stopped their ears because they could not believe what this one was saying. And so we saw that the Word of God always produces such a response, either in belief and faith and trust or in rejection and hostility and anger. In this case, it was the latter, so much so that they dragged the messenger out of the city and stoned him. But the problem is that they eliminated the messenger, but they did not eliminate the message. The message still remains because the message that was given that day was not ultimately from Stephen, but was from the Holy Spirit. See, what Stephen said was true. It was the truth. And yet mankind hates the truth. We know from Romans chapter 1, it says that mankind suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. And Jesus states it even more succinctly when he says, 
And this is the judgment. Or you could even say, and this is the verdict. The light has come into the world. And yet people love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. See, that's what is fundamentally wrong with the world in a nutshell. If you want to define sin, if you want to define depravity, what does that mean? It means that men love the darkness rather than the light. And that's not just true with the world out there. That is true with us as well. We recently in our home had a conversation with a child that had done something wrong. And we asked them, why did you do that? And the response was, I didn't do that. To which we said, we saw you do it. No, I didn't. No, we saw three people. We have three people here that are witnesses that you did. Nope. I'm sure that is not an unfamiliar conversation if you're a parent or a grandparent. But the sad part of that is that is not only just true with children, is it? When we're corrected by our spouse or by others, our first thought is not, you know what, you're right. Our first thought tends to be, how dare they? How dare they not think I am as wonderful as I think I am? Thinking that there is something wrong with me. Have they even seen what they need to correct? What's wrong with them? Why the denial? It's because the truth hurts, doesn't it? It's humbling. We hate to admit wrong. It injures our pride. We don't want to change. It's like giving medicine to a young child. They fight and they scream and they protest and they gag and they cough and they spit. Anything but have that medicine go down to where it is needed and where it will be most helpful. And as much as you try to say to them, this is for your good, they do not believe you. They think it is as poison. And that is true on an individual level as much as a cultural one. That the truth and the light of God oftentimes seems like poison. It seems toxic for all of those reasons that I listed because it is convicting. It is humbling. It requires change. And ultimately, it demonstrates that I am not in control. I'm not the master of my fate. I'm not the captain of my soul. It demonstrates that I am not God. That there is someone greater There is someone mightier. There is someone more powerful than me. And I must give homage. I must give obedience. I must give worship to this one. And that, you see, flies in the face of a rebellious mankind. That is what the natural heart will not tolerate. It manifests itself in rejection. Oftentimes, hatred and rage. And even in this case with Stephen, murder. And that is epitomized in this person that is named Saul in verse 1. Again, look at those words. Saul approved of his execution. Now we know that the Lord will do a mighty work in this man's life. 
He will do a good and glorious work through this man that he will soon call Paul. But here, as Saul, there are no more damning words than these. To be so darkened, to be so deceived, to think that you are doing the work of God by putting an innocent man to death. When it says that he approved of it, it means that he was the one that was leading this execution. The rest were doing so on his command. I think that is proven by the fact that they laid the garments at Saul's feet. Saul was seemingly the ringleader. And it did not stop there. The execution and murder of Stephen was the launching point. It was the catalyst to the full-blown seek and seizure of all Christians in Jerusalem. And it was Saul that was leading the charge. He was the man that was on a mission. In fact, it says in verse 3, Saul was ravaging the church. You hear those words. The the imagery is like a, a predator seeking his prey, destroying that which he has destroyed. Saul was animal-like in his blindness and in his fury. It says he was entering house to house, perhaps houses of worship where they were gathering together to to worship Christ and to, to have fellowship with one another. It says that he was dragging off Men and women. Notice men and women. The the Greek is very emphatic on that. He dragged off both men and women. There was no sympathy. This is pure savagery. He was putting an end to this supposed cult. Thinking all the while he is doing it. For the good of Israel and the glory of God. That's how darkened. This man was in heart and in mind. Now we might read this passage and think, you know what, this this is a little extreme. This Saul character is a little bit radical. No, this is not radical. We must understand this is the reality of the battle of the war that is ongoing since the, the creation of the world's. In fact, we read in day one, God created light. And it says that he separated the light from the darkness. And there is this battle between light and darkness that goes on to this very day between truth and deception. And I don't need to lay out to you all of the ways that we see this attack, this darkness against the truth. It's an attack on the the family and on marriage and on sexuality and on gender and on race. Basic building blocks of humanity and culture. But if the foundation is eroded, then the whole structure is destroyed. And as a result, those that stand for truth, the truth that is given to us by God through the Lord Jesus Christ, those people are vilified throughout the world and and even in our culture. They're seen as hindering progress. But my question is always, progress to what? I tell you what, it's to, to chaos and to confusion where anything goes. It's away from 
truth. It's away from the light. It's towards darkness and and deception. But we shouldn't be surprised by that, should we? That battle is not new. It's his oldest time. We read it in Genesis chapter 3, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpents. And that is manifested throughout the Old Testament, but specifically in the, the Lord Jesus Christ, what they do with this pure, innocent one, this one that is the, the light of the world. They killed him. They destroyed him. And the same too with Stephen. And we need to understand as believers that that's the battle. That's what we enter into. We enter into the phrase, followers of Jesus Christ. We must know those ramifications. Jesus told us, if the world hates you, know that it hated me. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Now don't be mistaken. Satan and the world are defeated foe. Through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who who rules and reigns over all, even over all the forces of darkness, That does not mean that Satan and the world do not seek to to wreak havoc. In fact, if you read Revelation, in Revelation chapter 12, we see that Satan is, is seen as this dragon. This dragon that we're told tried to consume the woman and the child, but could not. But Revelation 12 goes on to say this. So the dragon was enraged. Does that sound familiar? The dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring. And then John defines who her offspring are. Those who keep God's commandments and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. That is what is so keenly seen in the execution of Stephen, isn't it not? And the persecution of the early church. And so we should not read Acts chapter 8 and think this is an oddity. No, this is the norm. Peter in 1 Peter 4 says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trials that have come upon you as so something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. But you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. You hear what Peter is saying. Do not be surprised. Don't think something is strange. No, this is what we should expect. And I even know is is happening and is going to happen. Now, we think it is odd because we've had it relatively good and relatively easy here in the West. Things may change and we ought to be ready for change, but we need to understand what's going on in the world, what's going on even now. Open Doors Ministry this week came out with their annual report on the persecuted church. Listen to these statistics. 5,898 Christians killed for their faith. 5,110 churches attacked. 6,175 believers detained without trial, arrest, sentenced, or imprisoned. 3,829 Christians abducted. And all of those are in the last year. Those are staggering numbers that we must not forget. And that has been going on every year. 
way back to the days of Stephen and of Saul and even beyond. And so, do I have your attention? This is real. But the question that I want to look at this morning is, is what is our response in a world that hates Christians and is willing to persecute them and even put them to death because of their hatred and evil and anger? Well, that is the second point, the gospel response. Let me tell you, first of all, what we're not to do. We're not to fight evil with evil. We're not to form a militia or take up arms or trade blows for blows. We're not looking for contention. We're not egging on persecution. We're not trying to provoke a fight. Nor are we to hunker down and cloister together and build bunkers because the the big old bad world is out to get us. We don't need holy huddles or compounds with big walls. Likewise, we're, we're not to hold our tongues and and never say anything. Just be silent. No, we're not to concede ground or cave like a house of cards so that there would be no conflict, so that there would be no friction. No, none of those are the right responses. Rather, we are called to be what Christ has called us to be. And even do so with increased fervor as we would see these things taking place. Listen again to what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. Children of God, you are to be children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. We're to be children of God that follow God. And we're to... Not be of the world, but the scriptures are very clear that we're to be in the world. We're to be that salt and to be that light. That means if you have a secular job and you're surrounded by pagans that are very different on their views of of life and of what is right and what is wrong, if that is true of you, then praise God. He's placed you exactly where you need to be. And he's called you to minister in that workplace. Likewise, if you're in a neighbor with, neighborhood with few that know the, know the Lord, praise the Lord. That's why the Lord has placed you there, put you there. Those are the places that were to bear light for Christ. And you might think, well, how do I do that? Well, just that. Do your work unto the glory of God. Be a good neighbor. Be willing to... Be a light to testify to the light of Christ. And even be willing to to bear your cross in that place in order to be salt in life. It means that we we don't participate in things that are not God-honoring, God-glorifying. We don't participate, perhaps, in the workplace or the neighborhood drama or gossip. Rather, we, we treat others with love and respect and we minister and care for them as i said this morning in in sunday school your your work your neighborhood that is your ministry that is your mission yes we can have these other extracurricular missions and and help these other organizations and then send money yes do all of those things but see your work see your neighborhood as this is my 
mission ground. This is the place that God has put me and placed me to be that salt and light. And we must be willing to be, as a result, excluded and left out and overlooked and passed by and made fun of or even fired or perhaps even worse if we're truly doing it for the sake of righteousness. And if we do so, don't cry about it, pout about it, say that's not fair, but rather be reminded of what Jesus is. If that is you, if you endure that, then you are blessed. Blessed are you, Jesus says, when others revile you, persecute you, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. None of that means that reviling and persecuting and other harm is fun. No, it's painful. It is more than we realize, but we can know and be reassured that if that is taking place, that the Lord is at work and is at work in and through you in order for there to be fire. There's got to be friction. And in order for the fire of revival to fall on this place, it's going to take that friction with the world and even that persecution. And so if things are heating up in our country, then praise God. Praise God, but are we as believers willing to endure the friction for the sake of the gospel and the good news of Christ? Are we willing to be a part of the Holy Spirit fire on this country and in this world? Well, how is that going to happen? Well, I'll tell you first how it will. It's going to happen through prayer, through intercessory prayer. Notice if we go back just a little bit to Stephen's prayer. Isn't it amazing as people are enraged, as they're grinding their teeth, as they're laying hold and hands upon him, what does he do? I'll tell you what I would be doing. I'd be trying to find the nearest exit and (laughs) making him way out of there. But that's not what Stephen did, did he? He was not concerned for his own well-being, rather the well-being of of Christ and the glory of God. And Stephen gives him a a vision of Christ, the right hand of the Father, standing in defense of one of his own. As he's about ready to be dragged out and stoned, Stephen is entering into the throne room of, of heaven. And he's making prayers. He's giving prayer requests. As stones are being hurled at him, first, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, but second, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. Notice that. He's not saying, Lord, bring fiery judgment upon these people. Treat them like Sodom and Gomorrah. No, he's saying, Lord, forgive. Lord, save. Is that our attitude in the face of hostility? Is that our prayer for those that hate your guts? And reject everything that you stand for. Is your prayer of love and forgiveness and grace. Stephen is a model of our Lord, isn't it? Who did the same both in prayer, asking the Father to forgive, but also in giving his life for the sake of another. It's ultimate love for one's enemies. Now, I'm not saying that the Lord will 
call you to give of your life, but would you at least give of your prayers for the sake of this world, for the sake of those that are lost? Yes, we must always be ready to give our life, to to give our all, but let it start at least now with our prayers and our intercession for others. Father, forgive. Father, be merciful. Father, do a work in their heart and in their mind and in their life. I tell you, revival will not take place without prayer. Recently, one of our founders of our, one of the, the biggest churches in, in the PCA passed away, Frank Barker of Briarwood Presbyterian in Birmingham. And Frank, if you know anything about him, had a heart for the lost and for personal evangelism. And when asked, what is the key to success? What, what program did you use? What method did you use to, to build this church? He would say, honestly, it wasn't a program. It was prayer. Personal prayer, corporate prayer, prayer ministry that was around the clock in that church. That's where there is power. People get on their knees to pray, crying out for a Savior to do a work of salvation. Smyrna Church, there's a a lot of things that we can do, but there's only one thing that we can afford not to do, and that is to not pray. We must pray and pray and pray some more. Pray for the lost and pray for revival and pray for salvation. That when persecution comes, that we would pray all the more. And second, we ought to do what this church did, this early church. It says when they were scattered, they went about preaching the word. See, this isn't just formal preaching. No, this is, a, a, in a sense, the, the word is evangelizing. It's, a, it's literally gospeling the word, not gossiping the word, gospeling the word. That wherever they went, though they were being persecuted, though they were being scattered, though they were being separated from family and losing possessions, They couldn't help but talk about Christ and the good news of the gospel. They held very lightly to the things of this earth because they held so deeply to the things of Christ. There was this excitement and enthusiasm that they couldn't keep it in. Last weekend when there was the the snow and the snowstorm, it didn't matter where you went. All you heard was there was snow coming, there's snow coming. There was this excitement and preparation for it. At work, and school, at the grocery line. Oh, if we had that same type of excitement and anticipation about Christ. When's the last time you gospeled about Jesus? Not gossip, gospeled. Would we be a gospeling church? And even more so as the days grow dark, that we would preach the word wherever we go as ambassadors of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see the pattern, don't you? That persecution leads to to praying and to preaching and promoting and promulgating the the gospel. And as a result, there's a a prospering, ever-expanding church. We have very little time to look into it, but you see that as a result of this persecution, Philip goes down to Samaria and there he proclaims, there he preaches Christ as it says. And this is a part of that transition in the book of Acts. Because you remember when Jesus says, you're to be my disciples in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Well, we see that the gospel now is going into Samaria. None of which would have happened without the death of Stephen, without the persecution of the church. Persecution is always God's means of advancing His kingdom. 
here and beyond. I know it seems like an oxymoron to to say prospering and persecuted in, in the same sentence. But that's how it works. And isn't it like our God to do things above and beyond our comprehension and and use things that seem strange, that seem counterintuitive, that seem negative even, and use them for his own purpose, for his own glory. I'll end with this. We can have the right plan. We can, and we ought. We ought to have the right gospel response. But none of it will equate to a hill of beans if there is not love. A love for Christ. A love that overflows for the love of the loss. See, we ought not to have hatred or disdain or even indifference or even just nice, happy thoughts of those that don't believe the same things that we believe or do not see the same things about Christ as we see and believe. No, it's not just nice thoughts. It's love. Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those that persecute you. When we think, I I don't know, Jesus. That's a bit much. I don't know that I can do that. If that is true, and if we're honest, that's all of us, then we ought to go to the one that loved us while we were yet enemies. I loved you enough to send his son as an atoning sacrifice for your sins and ask him to give you such a heart for the lost. And then you'll have all the power, all the motivation that you need to to pray and to preach and to proclaim with very little concern for self. Let me finish with this quote. It comes from Charles Simeon, who was the pastor of the church in Cambridge for over 15 years at the beginning of the 19th century. And it was not an easy 50 years of pastoral ministry. He endured much shame and much mocking and much reviling, both in Cambridge from those outside the church and even from those within the church. And the young pastor once asked him, how have you done it, Simeon? How have you been able to to labor on faithfully for these 50 years? How have you endured all the way to the end? Charles Simeon said this, my dear brother, we must not mind a little suffering for Christ's sake. When I'm getting through a hedge, if my head and shoulders are safely through, I can bear the pricking of my legs. Let us rejoice in the remembrance that our holy head, the Lord Jesus Christ, has prevailed in all his sufferings and is triumphant over death. And so let us follow him patiently. We shall soon be partakers of his victory. Brothers, sisters, would we too not mind a little suffering, a little pricking of the legs, all for Christ's sake. Join me in prayer. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we admittedly don't like truth like this. It makes us very uncomfortable. And we like our comfort. We like our security. But Lord, just as you had to arouse the church through persecution, would you do so as well in us? Not because we need persecution to be motivated, Lord. I hope not. 
but because we have all that we need in the love for you as our Lord and our Savior. Lord, where our love grows cold as it so often does, would you allow it to be inflamed again? Would you allow it to to burn in us? And would that overflow, O Lord, to this lost and this dying world? Lord, would we be reminded that we were once a part of that lost and dying world, but you came to save and redeem us as sinners. And so would you use us, O Lord, our prayers, our preaching, our gospeling for your sake, all for your glory, O Lord, so that you would redeem those that are yours, your children that are yet lost. Lord, would you bring the sinner in because you are such a God that has brought us in. And would you do it that much more? We pray it, O Lord, in Christ our Savior. Amen.